Welcome to Leaning In and Speaking Out, a Research Connection podcast. This is a podcast from Brandon University's Centre for Aboriginal and Rural Education Studies, or BU Cares. Every episode, we connect with a researcher and a community member around a topic of interest. We want to model how research connects with the broader community and highlight the knowledge that both researchers and community members bring to the table. Welcome back to Lean In and Speaking Out. This is the final episode of our special three-episode series discussing suicidality in rural communities across Canada. Before we begin, I would like to preface this by saying that we are talking about a sensitive subject today, suicide, and lived experience of suicide will be discussed. If the topic of suicide, suicidal ideation, or self-harm are triggering for you, please be cautious while listening and engage in self-care and reach out for supports if needed. So this episode series stems from a recent project undertaken by Brandon University's Center for Critical Studies of Rural Mental Health. The Public Health Agency of Canada, in partnership with the Mental Health Commission of Canada, previously completed a project investigating suicide in Canada, but felt that there were populations whose voices were missing. In spring of 2020, the centre was contracted by the Public Health Agency of Canada to investigate one of these missing groups, rural and remote communities. We conducted an in-depth scoping review of existing literature on rural suicide and conducted six focus groups across Canada. Three main themes emerged, stigma, service accessibility, and lived experience, which brings us to today. My name is Kira Rausch, and I am a research assistant for the Centre and for this project. I am here today with a special guest who is going to help me speak to one of the final three main themes we uncovered in the project, lived experience. So Jerry, welcome. Thanks, Kira. Thanks a lot for having me. Of course. And I just want to start off and give the listeners an idea of who you are by asking you to introduce yourself, as well as just give us a little bit of background about your personal experience with mental health. All right. I appreciate that. Well, like you said, my name is Jerry Friesen. Um, I often refer to myself as the recovering farmer. Um, And there's a whole story there on its own. But um, I used to farm actually in southwestern Manitoba. Um, in 2003, I was actually, I was doing farm debt mediation work. I was uh, working with a couple in the southeast corner of Manitoba. And during the, the discussion with that couple, I suddenly felt my heart do some interesting palpitations. And I had a shortness of breath and I wasn't, I thought actually I was having a heart attack. It, it passed relatively quickly, but then it started happening more frequently. So early 2004, I did go seek um, the help of a professional, uh, just a doctor, I shouldn't say just a doctor, but a general practitioner. And he explained that I was feeling I was experiencing anxiety, which was a precursor, I suppose, to depression, or it might be happening already. So he put me on, he gave me a prescription for medication. And I, I was very much the type that, oh, okay, if a doctor tells me that I need medication, I'll take medication. In mm-hmm. fact, I believe I had actually facetiously said once to someone, maybe I should go on antidepressants. So I did. And, and that cure, I often say, is, was the recovery part of my journey, where I started the recovery part. Uh, the discovery part came much later. I did go on, <clears throat> on medication for about a year and a half, and then I thought I was doing fine, and I went off medication. 
but then had an experience in 2005, actually, um, I was farming together with my brother and he had a significant motorcycle accident, which I witnessed, which kind of pushed me over the edge again. Uh, my wife and I talked about it at that point and, and decided, well, instead of going back on medication, we should try talk therapy. And, and mm -hmm. so I was the type with my experience in, in, agricultural politics, I call it, I thought, well, I'm going to start at the top. So I made an appointment with a psychologist. Uh, that appointment was incredibly disappointing. Um, he spent an hour talking to me, I told him how I was experiencing the anxiety and depression, how our farm was going through significant financial trouble, and how I just wanted to sell the farm and move on. And he kind of actually gave me a little bit of a tongue lashing for wanting to sell the family farm. And at the end of the hour appointment, he said, well, you can't afford me, go back on medication. Oh, my God. Yeah. And you know what, Kira, that kind of made me feel like I was a hopeless case. Um, but I did try some other talk therapy. And eventually, I did go back on meds which is fine. I'm not opposed to medication. I just, I'm a firm believer that there's other ways. Mental health is one of these intricate things that people experience that you don't have an easy answer to. It's not like breaking right. your leg or your arm, right? Where you get an x-ray and you have a broken bone and it gets set and casted and it heals and boom, you're done. So regardless, I did go back on medication. And then in 2007, actually, I I, as our farm was winding down because we just simply couldn't carry on anymore, I actually came across an ad in the Manitoba Cooperator asking for volunteers for the Manitoba Farm and Rural Stress Line. So I applied for that, and interestingly enough, they accepted me. And, <laughs> and that's where I often say that the discovery part of my journey started. Um, I learned so much about mental health, I learned so much about how it applied to me. Uh, because as many people that experience mental health or mental illness, uh, that's, that's an ongoing journey. And I often say my journey continues today, and it does. I have to be very much aware of what's going on in my life, and I have to be proactive with the tools that I know will work. And, but, but the bottom line is, is that I've also come to the realization, and, and this morning was no different, Kira. I woke up at 5.30 when I often get up because I like playing golf and I go golfing early in the morning. And yet, as I was laying in bed, I really didn't feel any reason to get out of bed. It just it felt dark. It just didn't feel like I wanted to carry on with life. But I've gotten used to that. So, so I know if I get up and I have my cup of coffee, it takes half an hour to an hour and it, I, I move out of that darkness and, and can enjoy life. Uh, although there are some days where that darkness sticks around for the course of the day. But again, I know, you know what, I'll make it through today and tomorrow will be better again. So, so, it's, a, so it's an awareness. But that kind of, in a Coles Notes <laughs> version, Kira kind of covers from when I was first diagnosed to, to today. I started opening up about my story in 2010, started talking about it publicly. Mm -hmm. And just the way people have responded over time and how people, when I open up and others come and talk to me, even people I've known that have been hiding their own mental health challenges and, and then they're ready to open up and, and share. And you know what? I maintain that sharing with each other is a great help in finding the tools necessary to live life as best possible. Yeah. I want to thank you first off for 
obviously sharing all of that, not only with me, but everyone listening. Um, you know, and I also really commend you for having that, you know, not great experience when you first tried to reach out to a psychologist for formal support and, but then trying again and, and not giving up, even though obviously right afterwards, you're going to feel quite defeated by that, but you persevered and tried again. And like you said, you are still on your journey and that journey probably will never totally end, but you've come a really long way. And obviously now are in quite a good place. Yeah, and- for sure. And, and, and it's, a, it's a challenge I often leave with people. And, and I've had the question asked, well, how do I know that the mental health professional I'm going to see is the right one? And I said, you know what? Oh, I, I, I think the last time I counted, I've had seven or eight different appointments with different mental health professionals. And, and you know what? I, I think they all help to a degree. But it takes a special, you know, just that one appointment that suddenly, you know what, all the dots were connected and, and things made sense to me. So, so I tell people never give up, go out and get that second, third or fourth opinion because it's well worth it. Absolutely. And you also aren't maybe going to just mesh with the first person that you see. So I think that's a really good message to get across to people is that this journey, as you always see, but it's not linear and it's not exactly. going to be a one-stop fix, like yeah. we talked about with the broken bone. Yeah. And I just wanted to share with everyone listening a brief description of what we, um, for the project, defined lived experience as. So lived experience of suicide was defined as having experienced suicidal ideation, attempted suicide, or had someone close to you who has died by suicide. So Jerry, is there anything that you'd like to add to this description or just maybe give us a brief uh, rundown of what lived experience means to you as someone who does have lived experience of mental health? You know, and that's a good question, Kira. And uh, I guess up until recently, when I was asked, and people often avoid the subject, and I don't mind being asked that question all at all, because I think it's a really important one. But people have asked me whether I was ever suicidal. And And I always said, no, I wasn't suicidal. And yet when when an expert in this, in fact, your last guest, Kim Moffat, I told her that one time. And and then I explained to her what my thoughts had been in my darkest times. And she said, oh, yeah, absolutely you were. That's that's what suicidal ideation is all about. And, And I remember when I first went on medication, the doctor actually warned me that for the, for the first six weeks, it might actually get worse. That was a very, very dark time for me. And, and in fact, my wife will sometimes talk about the fact that she'd leave for work in the morning and I'd be curled, basically curled in a fetal position on the couch. And she would have no idea what she was coming home to. Uh, she was really scared. Um, but I know particularly during that time, and it's cropped up later too in my journey is I at the time had figured out how I could die by suicide like the idea was although I didn't necessarily want to the ideation was there and and so in my mind and and this is where things become rather convoluted sometimes for people people in fact I remember I would have I yeah I have to 
I did go to a funeral a few years ago to a younger, in fact, as a guy that had been friends with my kids. And I told a colleague that I was going to a funeral the following day for a young guy who had died by suicide. And she said, oh, that's so selfish. And I just felt rage go through me because no, it isn't selfish. It, no. For people, and, and perhaps for people that have never experienced that darkness, it's, it's easy to think of it as being a selfish act. But trust me, when you've been there, it's not selfish because when you're in that spot, you're not thinking about what you might do to other people. You're just, you're just for the life of you trying to escape that immeasurable pain that you're experiencing. So, and in my twisted mind back then, because the farm was in such financial trouble. And so obviously my wife and kids, we were feeling this financial stress. I just thought in my twisted way of thinking, you know what, if I died, my life insurance kicks in. So at least my wife and kids can move on and be happy. Right. Um, So that's there. Part of this is also, and Kira, you've talked to other experts about this, the stigma attached to to mental health, to suicide. I mean, the shame piece I just talked about is perhaps somewhat of a stigma. I went to a funeral in 2018, I think it was. A friend of mine, someone I had grown up with and had been friends with, his wife died by suicide, which... I had known these people. I never realized that this woman was having the journey she was having. Right. But I did go to the funeral. And, and as bizarre as it sounds, I left that funeral feeling encouraged because this woman's kids got up and talked about how in that short week since her death, they had learned so much about mental illness. And they said that you know what, we, when, when people die because of cancer or other illnesses, we, in the obituary, you'll always read, well, they fought a courageous battle with cancer, right? right? And they said, our mother fought a courageous battle with mental illness. And it was just like, wow. That was, I, I, I felt so relieved because I knew that myself and others that are experiencing the same thing, we can quit feeling ashamed of what we're experiencing, because we're we're on a daily basis, we're fighting that battle. Absolutely. And so and then- that that piece, sorry, that piece was really encouraging. And so I left that funeral feeling really encouraged, but at the same time feeling significant fear, because I was afraid of some morning perhaps I would wake up and just not be able to face another day. You yeah. know, because that's that's how we experience things. Kind of those mixed emotions or I think I think it's really great how her family put it where and you're totally right right like suicide mental illness is a disease your brain is the most important organ in your body and it can get sick like any other organ in your body can and we wouldn't say if someone had brain cancer that they were selfish or anything like that. And even if that person, you know, didn't mean to be, um, it caused those feelings of shame. That is just, like you said, kind of the stigma that exists when we talk about things like suicide in our society. But I really appreciate that that woman's family looked at it and said that she did fight. And I don't want there to be a, um, like a misconception with people where people think that people who die by suicide just gave up. 
they, they didn't, they fought to live every single day. And it is, it's a disease. And I think you said those mixed emotions is really powerful because the way that they were open about it and phrased it in such a way that she, yes, she lost the battle, but it was a battle and kind of took away those feelings of shame a bit because there's so many other people out there fighting the exact same battles that you are. Right. Um, But at the same time to see someone who has lost the battle can be scary too, because you know that while you don't want that, that is a potential option down the road. And I mean, I don't think, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I think most people who die by suicide don't actually want to. Exactly. You know, there's a saying that I often use that, that people that are experiencing mental illness aren't afraid of dying. They're afraid of living. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that just sums it up totally because, again, that, that darkness can be so overwhelming um, that it, it's tough to figure out how we can ever get out of it. And I think this kind of segues us nicely when you're talking about those mixed feelings. Our previous episodes focused on stigma as well as service accessibility in rural communities. And how do you think that these factors are factored into your own lived experience? And we can start off with that stigma piece, if you'd like, because we were just talking about that. Well, and, and you know what? I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a typical male, okay? Okay. <laughs> so, um, I know, and I, I facilitated workshops in Brandon in 2010 called Men in Depression, and it was focused particularly on men because... Th- there is as much as we move along, we have to be careful about talking about gender differences. Men have traditionally felt hesitant about seeking help. Um, I, I'm at the age where I can clearly remember when we were growing up, there was that, there was that attitude, uh, pervasive attitude out there that, you know what, if you're experiencing uh, mental health issues, it means you're not working hard enough. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a certain shame put on it, right? And so, so people wouldn't go seek help because of that stigma. And it's taken a long time. Um, I found it encouraging. Like I say, I started talking about my own story and did these workshops in 2010. And after that, I would be asked to, to present publicly occasionally and Whenever I was asked, they would say, well, you know what, we want your presentation to be 40 minutes long and we'll leave 10 minutes for Q&A. Well, I always chuckled when they said that because I said, no, when I do my presentations, trust me, there won't be any questions because (laughs) people don't want to expose their own thoughts, right? Right. But in the last few years, actually, it's been very interesting how people are starting to publicly ask questions. And in fact, I had a man ask me at a workshop, one of the last workshops I presented at, who got up and asked me the question, how do I find a professional that can help me? And that kind of actually moves us into service accessibility, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Rural Manitobans, rural communities anywhere, you have to drive quite a distance to actually find a professional. And then to be able to find a professional that particularly with agriculture knows the intricacies of agriculture can be very difficult. Yeah, Um, for sure. 
the, the anecdotally, I heard a little while ago about a gentleman that, that shared this publicly said, you know what, I went to the doctor because of overwhelming stress. And I just had no idea how I could survive. And he had the different symptoms and everything else. And the doctor just automatically pulled out his notepad and wrote him a prescription for a two week, uh, two weeks of time off. Well, the guy left the office and said, well, I can't, I'm a farmer. It's a harvest time. I can't take two weeks off. You seriously can't. And no. I, that's, I guess, exactly what you're touching on. But it's really difficult for people to reach out for the first time and then have experiences such as that, where it's like, I just spent an hour telling you exactly. everything that's going on and you don't understand it at all. Exactly. Uh, and, and in surveys that get done, and back in 2006, I think it was, the Canadian Agricultural Safety Association did a uh, survey across Canada of 1,100 farmers, I believe, and U of Guelph did one in 2016. They've just done another one. I'm really curious what that will reveal. But every time these surveys were done, one of the reasons farmers were hesitant to seek help was because they weren't sure that the professional they would talk to would be would be aware of all the intricacies of agriculture, right? And what what farmers actually experience, right? So, so that's that's one of the things that's holding people back. And I think that's such a. I mean, and me and Kim last week did speak about this as well, obviously to greater lengths than we will. But that was a really big conversation, not just for us, but for our stakeholders. All of what you said, and I think that's why you know, we do have specialized supports for agriculture and things. Like you said, yes. you volunteered for the farm and rural uh, support line. Yeah. And I also volunteered for clinic, but on the general crisis right. and suicide lines, because I have no background in agriculture and therefore was not able to volunteer on the farm lines. And so sometimes it's necessary to provide those like more separated and individual supports. Absolutely. And, and I think it's unfortunate the direction Manitoba has gone with, with the farm line being moved into Winnipeg, because I think that connection now to agriculture is basically gone. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, and, they moved into a bigger a really, center. Yeah, that's a really key piece to being able to help farmers. Yeah, and help them on, like you said, I think especially for rural communities and farmers starting that journey to recovery is I think there's an extra step. There's an extra challenge there just because of where geographically they are yeah. and what's available to them. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, you actually have you know mentioned a few times your journey to recovery and you actually shared your story that you tend to share during say talks or workshops. And you shared that with me prior to us meeting today. Um, and you made a really good analogy in it that I really, you know, it resonated with me about comparing the road to recovery to a labyrinth. Yeah. And can you kind of expand on what you meant by that with everyone listening? Well, and it's interesting. And I, I shared this with you. The, the, the way I came about this is I like to write blogs and stuff. And, and so one day, and actually for a presentation, I was writing out what I'd like to say. And I wrote the word labyrinth. And then I stopped myself and I went, oh, what does that mean? And so I looked it up in the dictionary and it's a complicated set of passages and tunnels and bends and turns in which it would be very easy to become lost. Mm -hmm. 
And, and that's what it is. And I, I think it, it relates back to what I said about awareness before is because I'm aware of the labyrinth I live in, I know that when I make a wrong turn or I'm in a dark tunnel, I don't give up, but rather I turn around and I, I keep going, right? And so, like I said before, some days I'm in that tunnel most of the day and other times I'm lucky and I'm not in that tunnel. And so what I also like to add to that is, you know, these days when you travel back in the day, and maybe you don't remember this, Kira, but I sure do, <laughs> there'd always have to be a passenger with a roadmap on their lap, right, to, right. to provide direction. Well, we have GPS these days. And so as, as people that experience mental illness, we need that GPS. And that GPS, that it can be various things that, that help us on that journey. And so... To, because yeah like you said before that journey continues and so I'll always be in that labyrinth but because of the various tools I know because of the professionals I've seen because of the people that I've been able to share with it's so much easier traveling that labyrinth and I think what you said is really good it's you know if you're in that labyrinth obviously a map is what you need but for people with mental illness you're kind of building that map as you go and you're building it yourself. No exactly. one's just going to give it to you. Exactly. And so you have mentioned a few times, you've been to a number of different professionals and you've tried medication. You've tried the talk therapy. You said, you know, you've seen a, a naturopath or a naturopath, um, yeah. which is, you know, something I not considered maybe a formal, like traditional support, but someone that helped build your map and has given you, new kind of tips and tricks yeah and, and I, i'll just make a comment about the naturopath you're absolutely right you know what i went i've seen psychiatrists psychologists community mental health workers therapists counselors family doctors and uh, it's three years ago i believe it is that my family saw i was headed off the tracks again and there's uh, i was obviously in a tunnel in a labyrinth and not finding my way out and they said you know what, you need to go seek help. And it's like, I've been everywhere. I've right? seeked all the help. <laughs> yeah. And then my wife suggested, well, maybe you should go see a naturopath. And I just simply wasn't in any shape at that point to argue with her. So yeah, I went to see a naturopath. And on the way, wasn't very enthused about it. Because I just thought, well, here's another appointment that's going to fail. And so so, but it was amazing. And my wife said, when I got home that day, she said, that's the first time I've ever seen you come home from an appointment with a smile on your face. Hmm. Because finally someone, and like I said before, had, had connected some dots for me that nobody else had. And so I, I think, you know, she's a naturopath uh, specializing in mental health. And I mean, the other piece that <laughs> as an older ex-farmer, you know that, you know, I'm a meat and potatoes type guy. And so yeah. if you go see a naturopath, that's going to mean all kinds of strange foods I'm going to have to eat now and strange supplements and what have you. And the bizarre thing is the first thing she told me is um, you, aside from the serotonin problem that everybody else had told me about, she says, you have a dopamine issue. You need to build your dopamine. And okay. so, okay, how do I do that? Well, with protein. So since then, every morning I drink a protein shake, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's been so helpful. Not, not again, I've, there, there's different pieces. I'm talking about, a, you know, my life of 
of mental illness, anxiety, depression, but also of addictions. And so that's an important piece just to add to the rest of my toolbox. So it's interesting how simple these things sometimes can be. Mm -hmm. But it can take a while to find them. Yes. And like you said, you have to kind of take it in stride, but because you know yourself and what's beneficial to you and Obviously, everyone has different coping strategies and everyone is going to have their own unique path. But I think what's really important for maybe people to take away from this is that you kind of give yourself hope because you've learned what works for you and you know that you have the tools to get out of it again. Yeah. And I think that's a really powerful idea is that you can, we, we think of hope as this big external thing a lot of the time. But I think, at least from what I'm hearing from you, I kind of see you as giving yourself hope yeah. every day. And I think that's really powerful. Yeah. And, and again, um, I mean, some days it works and some days it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Friday, <laughs> it was kind of funny. Friday um, at supper time, I, I said to Rose, my wife, I said, you know, it's really, really strange. And she kind of looked at me and she said, what? And I said, for the last two days, I have, I have felt this happiness inside of me, which, which was somewhat foreign to me because, you know, the pandemic, it's, it's created a lot of issues. Yeah. It's created issues in my life. I'm basically locked up at home because I do all my work virtually. I have a lung issue, which I have to be very careful. I don't get COVID. And, and so I've been extra cautious and doing my work from home. But the other day, somehow, you know, that happiness does come to the surface and and you just simply appreciate it knowing, you know what, next week, Monday, I might not have it, but I'm going to enjoy it while it's here. Well, and I think what we've been discussing, or at least what I've been discussing these past few episodes, you know, I wanted lived experience to be the final discussion for a reason. And I think we've alluded to it a lot here, but I wanted to kind of conclude the series with some hope. And Jerry, is there anything that you'd like to share with the listeners who may be going down their own journey and entering their own labyrinth of mental illness? Kira, first and foremost, I always challenge people to open up and talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it may not, you, you, you know, you may want to hide it from your wife and kids. Um, that's cool. I understand. I did the same thing. But the most impactful experience I had, Kira, going back to 2005 when my brother had that motorcycle accident. And three days after it happened, I went to the farm and my neighbor dropped by. And he asked me how I was doing. And my normal reaction, as most everybody's is, is I'm doing fine or I'm okay or not bad, whatever it may be, because we don't, we don't want to talk about what we're really thinking. Mm-hmm. And so for some strange reason that day, I started talking about everything that was going up and going on in my gray matter. And for half an hour, an hour, he sat there. He listened to me. He didn't judge me. He didn't sit there and give me answers. But what he did is he listened and he normalized and validated what I was feeling. And when he left that day, I had such a load lifted off my shoulders, just simply because I verbalized what I sometimes call stinking thinking, right? Because we, we, 
we start thinking things, we're not verbalizing them. And the more we think about them, the more out of control those thoughts go. And, and before you know it, you're going down some rabbit hole that you'll never get out of. And so when you verbalize things, number one is you, you, as soon as you start talking about a lot of these things, when I talk about what's going on in my brain and I verbalize it, I go, oh, hang on a minute. Where did that come from? That makes no sense. Right. And the other thing it does is it puts it out on the table. And now you don't have to sit and stew about it because you've just talked about it. And it's so helpful. And to have a friend that came down and, and let me do that. I've often expressed my appreciation to him since because that was a turning point in my life. Absolutely. And so since then, there's been friends I've had that I, I know that I, I'm safe talking to them. I know that their response won't be to give me a kick in the butt and tell me to, you know, grow, grow up or grow a pair, whatever they might say. Yeah. But rather they're helpful to me. And, and it's not that they focus in on all the negatives in my life, but rather what they help me do is they focus on the positive things I have going on. And so again, talking about it, uh, Alberta has a program called tough enough to talk about it. I challenge everybody out there, if, you, if you're feeling this, this anxiety, if you're feeling your emotions are subdued, if you're feeling stressed out, open up and talk to someone. I think that's a great point for everyone, right? Not even, like you said, someone who's struggling with mental illness, but anyone. If you Absolutely. have anything that you're kind of bottling up and you wish you could share... Try. Yes. And for everyone out there, I think too, who is a support for people to be a good support. I mean, you know, that friend that showed up at your farm, he didn't expect, you know, everything to come out that day. Right. But I think he handled it just right. He just sat there and actively listened and yeah. was like, it's okay. Like share, go, go ahead. Right. And I think that if anyone is being a support out there, that's also a really great way to do it is you don't need to be providing solutions no. and you don't need to be recommending that they see all of these people. Sometimes it's enough to just be a safe space yes. Yes. for everyone to talk. And with that safe space, it also takes away, I think, that shame and yes. the stigma. If people yes. are like, it's okay. Yes, absolutely. For sure. Yeah. And, and everybody reads the real, and you, you basically said it, Kira, but to put it in a few words, you're not alone. Mm -hmm. I mean, what did I read the other day? One, one in three farmers, I think it was, are experiencing some mental health, you know, uh, yeah. the, sur the survey that, sorry, I'm going way off on a limb here again, but the survey that the U of Guelph did in 2016 says, showed that 58% of those surveyed um, met the criteria for an anxiety classification 58 percent almost two-thirds of farmers out there if they went to see a professional would be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder that's, and that's huge. just the, yeah and that's just the ones that actually completed the survey yes i'm sure yes. a lot of people and even potentially darker spots didn't fill out the survey exactly and so and so there it is so <laughs> If, if you do it simplistically, if you have three neighbors, you know for a fact there's one or two of them experiencing the exact same thing you are. Mm -hmm. 
So share with each other. Absolutely. And we talked about a lot with stakeholders too. They brought up farmers a lot too, because they're not forgotten per se, but I don't think we really consider how much they have to bear sometimes. Exactly. And 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 I, I talk about all the professionals I've seen and I don't want to denigrate them because each one of them would have been helpful in one, some way, shape, or form. In fact, one of the later ones I saw, a therapist, the, she, I, I said to her, well, the one thing you can help me with is all this thinking that I do. And, and when I wake up at nights and I'm feeling, I feel anxious and I, my thoughts are running away on me and I don't know how to control them. She says, well, it's very simple. And she did this little exercise with me. And you'll find out that if you're ever focused on something and kind of zoned out and thinking about something and you're anxious about it, if you stop to think you're going to, you're going to find your tongue is firmly up against the top of your mouth. And so her, she said, when you're going through this, drop your tongue. And I kind of looked at her as if she had lost her mind, but then we tried it. And before I started talking about this publicly, I would with friends or neighbors or whoever, I would talk to them and they would share that they were, you know, feeling this, I'd say, well, try this. And invariably, they came back to me and said, yeah, that works. So there's a simple little trick, drop your tongue. I, I will probably end up realizing that and trying that too. <laughs> That's so interesting, especially how something so little can actually help. <laughs> Well, that's when I left there, my thought was, well, why didn't someone tell me that years ago? Yeah. <laughs> but, but that's why you learn something from every conversation you have. Absolutely. Everyone has something different yeah. to share. Yeah. Well, I think that's a perfect place for us to wrap up, not only this episode, but also this series. Um, to everyone listening, thank you for joining me throughout the series and helping further the conversations around mental health and suicide, because like we've talked about so much in every episode, but also wrapping up today is to just talk about it. That's a first step. And as actually Richard put it way back in episode one, we need to have casual conversations about difficult subjects. And I'm hoping that what we did here kind of starts that narrative for some people and you know, helps them realize that it's okay. And I wanna thank all the guests that joined me. So Richard, Kim, and today, Jerry, yourself, thank you for sharing your own personal experiences and insights. And please remember to reach out for support as needed. And above all, remember that there is hope. You've been listening to Leaning In and Speaking Out, the Research Connection podcast. For more episodes or to learn more about the BU Cares Research Center, please visit our website at brandonu.ca forward slash bu cares, or you can come find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube.